G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. So church, would you open up with me to Acts chapter 17? We'll be reading from verse 22 until the end of that chapter. So Acts 17 from verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris with others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, yes, good morning, uh, and it's, it's great to be with you here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a real privilege and joy uh, to be here, and I want to be uh, speaking to this question today, how do we share Jesus? How do we share Jesus? Which is um, a fairly basic question, but one that I think we need to keep on working at and we need to keep on asking ourselves and all the more as the cultural winds around us uh, turn into headwinds. Now, there was a time when culturally, as Christians, we had a tailwind. 
And it's a very different scenario, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever ridden a bike in a vicious headwind. Uh, I cycle quite a lot. You wouldn't necessarily know, but <laughs> actually do cycle a lot. Um, and uh, cycling into a headwind is a completely uh, different ball game than when you've got a tailwind. Uh, I often plan my rides so that I finish with a tailwind. I, I, watch, I study the weather maps and I want to make sure the home straight is a tailwind because it's so much more enjoyable and pleasant. And in fact, you might know that um, a teardrop is the most aerodynamic shape. And so, yeah, this, this doesn't, this helps. I'm carefully cultivating an aerodynamic body shape so I can handle the headwind all the more. Um, and as, as Christians, it's been often observed in the last few years, it's really gained a lot of speed, that we are facing a cultural headwind. You know, when Billy Graham packed out the MCG with a record crowd, it was a different era. It was at a time when Christians were considered the good guys. It was at a time when the God people didn't believe in but kind of thought they maybe should believe in, was the Christian God. It was a time, in other words, when society, culture as a whole, was way more receptive to the Christian message than now. We had a cultural tailwind. And in those moments, you can pack out the MCG, but now not, not the case at all, right? As Steve McAlpine has observed with his books, things have changed and we're no longer the good guys, we're the bad guys. Christians can be seen now as the bad guys in society and culture, not like the, the ethical backbone or bedrock of society, but actually a funny group which leads people astray and mess people up. That's kind of the space we're increasingly occupying. And so as we face a headwind as Christians, all the more pressing, right, to have a good answer for this question, how do we share Jesus? And today I do not want to presume to get into the details of how you actually as a church specifically should share Jesus, what programs you should run or for how long, or I don't want to talk about that kind of stuff because, you know, who am I to speak into that, but I want to talk broadly and generally about the kind of posture we are to take in relation to sharing Jesus. And I want to talk about uh, three things. The first one is we need to be a compelling community that offers an alternative to the world, a compelling community. We need to be people who are willing to build and burn bridges, be willing to burn and uh, build and burn bridges. And we need to be people, a group of people who practice prayerfulness. And prayer is something that um, is gonna be a big theme through this talk. Two of the passages that I look at this morning, we'll have prayer front and centre. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intuitive, isn't it, go-to. When, when you're facing a cultural tailwind, it's, it's natural and intuitive just to get out there and preach on the street corner because you're allowed to and people are receptive. But when that's outlawed or people throw tomatoes at you, what do you do? Well, often we think intuitively then, let's pray. 
prayer is a natural response. And I want to say absolutely today, yes, praying has to underpin how we work to share Jesus uh, in the world. And it reminds me actually of a fairly well-known story about a guy called uh, Jeremiah. I've forgotten his last name. I haven't written it down. I think it's Lanfear. Jeremiah Lanfear. Perhaps don't look that up. Maybe I'm just making it up right now. <laughs> There's this guy, a really impressive guy. Jeremiah was definitely his first name. But he lived during the 19th century, uh, and he was a lay leader in a church, and uh, he was quite fruitful, quite effective, and there was a church in New York City that was really struggling. So they asked him to come along to their church and try and breathe a bit of life back into it. And it was pretty hard times in New York generally. And so he came along and took up this role in this church in New York City on Fulton Street. It was called the Fulton Street Revival. And he tried a few things and nothing was really gaining traction. And then he decided to pray. And so he advertised in the local neighbourhood that he's going to have this prayer meeting Wednesday, 12pm. He advertised in the pubs on the highways and byways and he turned up at 12pm on Wednesday to pray and no one showed up. It was just him. 10 past 12, no one was there. 20 past 12, not really fashionably late anymore, just badly late. 20 past 12, still no one there. 12.30, someone finally turns up. By the end of the hour, there were four people there praying with him. The week after that, 20. And roughly speaking, the week after that, approximately 40 people. And so it went. You can look it up, read about it. It's a part of American history. It just took off like wildfire. Soon, they were having prayer meetings every day of the week at lunchtime. And it got to the point where they had 3,000 people gathering to pray. And this revival, this prayer-based revival broke out. They had to hire an auditorium to seat, to house this prayer meeting. And it spread right across America. And uh, some ridiculous figure, like something like 10% of people at that time turned to Christ through this prayer-based, prayer-led revival. And so I want to say, you know, in tough times, when we're facing a headwind culturally, how do we share Jesus? We pray. That undergirds everything. But something I want you to notice and that you'll see in the passages we look at in a moment is that the prayer isn't like this. God, soften their hearts. God, open their hearts to the gospel. God, Bring people to us. God, just work by your spirit to bring people in. That's not what we see modelled, and it's not what is taught in the New Testament. What is taught is God, this is the model of prayer, God, send me. God, work in me. Because as a body of believers, a body of Christ, this is God's mission strategy to the world. It's the church. And the prayers in the New Testament reflect that. God, mobilise your church. God, 
Help us to be bold. God, help us to keep going. God, help us to keep proclaiming. That's going to be the basic take-home message today, that we are praying that God would mobilise us to be the people of God we're meant to be in order that Jesus would continue to be shared even when we have an increasingly significant headwind. But first of all, how do we share Jesus? By being the compelling community. Look here with me at uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It'll come up on the screen here, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in uh, verse 2. Oh, sorry, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now there are three things that are said quite clearly and plainly on the surface. First of all, we're to pray for those governing over us, in authority over us. Secondly, it's pleasing to God for us to live quiet and godly lives. Thirdly, God wants all people to be saved. How do these three things fit together? Well, the logic flow of that passage seems to be pray for those in authority over us that we might live quiet and godly lives. In fact, it says that, that we might live quiet and godly lives, which is pleasing to God, who wants all people to be saved. In other words, through living quiet and godly lives with dignity and holiness, other people will be saved. They will observe an alternative community, which is compelling. This is God's mission strategy in the world. We are praying here. We are praying here in 1 Timothy for the mobilisation of the church and that we would be free to be worshippers of God and thus to display his glory and to witness to others. Why is community so important? Well, this is one of the key ways in which people come to adopt and be convinced of truth. In um, Sam Chan's book, which I think is how to talk about Jesus without being that guy, it's a great book, talking all about evangelism. Uh, Sam Chan talks about plausibility structures which is a sociological thing. Sociologists have observed that for people to adopt truth, to, to generally speaking, for people to take on things as true, it's usually because of a plausibility structure. That is, there is a community that believe this set of truths, there are experiences which back up those truths, and there are facts which support those truths. And intuitively, right, we might think, well, the way it works is the facts lead you to believe a certain set of truths. You then join a community which has that in common with you. And then you experience those truths lived out. But what Sam Chan picks up on, which and why he says a community is so important, is actually most of the time it's the other way around. Most of the time we are a part of a community 
that just holds on to a bunch of truths and we experience those truths lived out and then down the track we discover the facts that support those truths. That's generally actually how it works. In other words, those truths embodied, those truths lived out is what is so compelling most of the time. I believe the earth is round. Why? Well, because as a, as a five-year-old, of course, I was naturally a skeptic. I wouldn't believe anything. My parents told me the earth is round. I don't believe it. I need to know, know the facts. I, so I studied science and physics and whatever. What, what do you study? Geometry, chemistry? I don't know. I don't even have to study. I study all these things, obviously made up. And I came to the unshakable conviction that the world is in fact round. No, that's not how it works. I grew up believing the earth was round, right? I was part of a community that believes that, accepts that as true. And then, of course, as I go on in life, I believe that I've experienced that the earth is round. I've seen it. I've observed it with my own eyes. And then, of course, I've come to learn of certain facts that support those truths that I believe in. And, and saying here that that is why Christian community is so important. Sam Chan in his book talks about being a med student way back when, when he was a young man, and living in a share house with three other med students who were not Christians. And over a period of two years, they became integrated with his Christian friendship group. And by about the two-year mark, they all became Christians, his non-Christian friends. And he observes that sociologists say it takes about two years for you to really feel connected and a part of a new community. And he's saying his non-Christian friends became Christians first and foremost through living and experiencing the Christian life lived out. This is also something which is attested to by John Dixon uh, in his book that used to be called, I think it's something different now, but it used to be called Promoting the Gospel. Uh, and he's got some great stories there about the first centuries of uh, Christianity spreading and flourishing in the Roman Empire. And he's got this terrific quote from uh, Emperor Julian, it says, uh, which says this. So Emperor Julian in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries was writing to one of his pagan priests, and this is what he's writing to one of his pagan priests because he's so worried about the spread of Christianity. He says this. Why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers... Their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. Do you hear what he's saying? To his pagan priest, he thinks Christians are atheists because they're taking people away from the Roman gods. Christians are atheists. And why are they being so successful? Because they love. Because of their benevolence towards strangers. Because of the dignity they afford others and the love they serve each other with. It's a compelling alternative community. He writes in his book, John Dixon, that by the, the middle of the third century, there were 1,500 destitute people in the Roman Empire daily being supported, sheltered, fed by the Christians. Nowhere else to turn. And increasingly, Christians, we are the ones who will be marked by grace, by love, by mercy 
by generosity. How are, we to, how are we to share Jesus? By praying that we might be mobilized as this compelling community. Secondly, how might we um, share Jesus? Well, uh, by be, being willing to both build and burn bridges. By being willing as Christians individually and collectively, by being willing to both build and burn bridges. Listen to, to what it says in Acts um, 17. Acts 17 is one of those classic you know, go-to passages when we want to talk about um, uh, being culturally sensitive in our evangelism or engaging with culture as Christians. And look at what it says, no, reason, uh, no wonder why. Look there in uh, uh, Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We need to build bridges. Can you see the uh, bridge building project here? He appeals to them. I see you are religious in many and varied ways, he says. That's meant to be a compliment when he looks around at all their idols in the Areopagus. Uh, and then he says, I will, I will talk to you about the, the God you worship rightly, the unknown God. I'll let me talk to you about that God that you acknowledge. And as your own poets have said, we are God's offspring, right? So he's, he's building bridges, connecting with what they believe and where they're starting and they're thinking about God. But look how it goes on because the vibe changes. Look in verse 29. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time, the times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Wow, what a turn. What a zinger. The days of ignorance are over. You need to turn and repent. 
and God will judge you if you don't. And he's given assurance of this by raising the man he's appointed to judge from the dead. And as you can predict, this really created a divided response, right? Some scoffed, some mocked. It's time for you to leave the Areopagus, some followed. And my friends, in order to share Jesus, we, we must be willing to do both. Yes, build bridges, connect with people, show them the goodness of God and how it relates to people's lives. But we can't stop there. We have to also call people to repent and, so, and show people that we need to be forgiven, that it's serious and that it's real. A great example of this, I think, is, is the story of uh, Peter Hitchens' conversion. So Peter Hitchens is the brother of the late, great Christopher Hitchens, who was a ferocious atheist. You might know of him. But his brother, Peter Hitchens, who is still alive, is a Christian. And he says that a big part of his conversion story is when one day he was confronted by an, uh, by an artwork of the Last Judgment. But let, let me read it to you in his own words. I think it's quite compelling. This is what he says. Peter Hitchens, when he's talking about his conversion, he says, No doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. Specifically a painting, Roger van der Weyden's 15th century Last Judgment, which I saw in Burgundy while on holiday. I had scoffed at its mention in the guidebook, but now I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open at the naked figures fleeing towards the pit of hell. These people didn't appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation. Because they were naked, they were not imprisoned in their own age by time-bound fashions. On the contrary, their hair and the set of their faces were entirely in the style of my own time. They were me and people I knew. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying I was, I was, I was holidaying in Burgundy, as you do, relaxing, enjoying himself. He's in a museum. What could be less confronting than a museum. It's those lovely still places where everything is quiet. And he reads in the guidebook about this painting of the Last Judgment from a 16th century artist, and he scoffs. But then when he actually comes face to face with the painting, something hits home. Because they're naked in the painting, they look like contemporaries. He can see his friends in that painting. He can see himself. And it grabbed him. And it shook him. And it made him realise judgment's actually real. It's going to happen. And I need to do something about it. Going back to my first point, it's like he's sort of, you know, he, he has now encountered, right? He's in that painting. He's encountered a person, Roger van der Weyden, a person who lived at a time when people really believed 
in the serious, awesome judgment of God and painted thusly. And here he is encountering this community, experiencing their convictions, and he realizes there's something to it. We need to build bridges, but for the sake of proclaiming the life-saving gospel, we must be willing to burn them as well. And so we pray to that end, that we as Christians would be mobilized, would embrace this task. And finally then, you know, how do we share Jesus? How do we make him known? Well, we practice prayerfulness. So here's my last passage and the one I'll land on. The shortest point, here we go. Colossians chapter 4, verses uh, 2 to 6. Here it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how are we to share Jesus when we're facing a cultural headwind? Well, first, first of all, he just says, doesn't he? Generally, just pray generally. Be devoted to pray generally. And then he says, also, while you're praying, remember us. And what do we pray for Paul, who's the great evangelist? What do we pray for him, that hearts will be softened, that God will bring people to you? No. We pray that you will have opportunity to preach the gospel boldly as you ought. And then he says to them, you also be careful that you make the most of the time and speak wisely to the outsider. In other words, we're praying and we're praying that we would be mobilized as the people of God because this is God's mission strategy in the world, tailwind or headwind, in season, out of season. We're to be this compelling community which boldly proclaims the gospel in a way that builds bridges and is willing to burn them that others might be saved. This is our task. Imagine, if you will, uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, and they're given, aren't they, the first great commission. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? It means to feel, rule, subdue. That's the task given to them. To be God's image bearers, feel, rule, subdue. That is, carry on God's good work of filling filling creation with beauty and order. And and so there they are in the Garden of Eden. They've been put there to work the garden. And they're looking at each other and they're going, wow, this is amazing. We're image bearers of God. And uh, we've been given this monumental task to carry on his work of creation. Who is Fit for such a task. Psalm 8, you know, what is humanity? What is man? What is woman that you're mindful of them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. Who is equal to such a task? Who can do this? Let's pray. So there they are in the garden being told to work it and they pray. 
This seems like a spiritual thing to do, right? Who is equal to such a task? Let's just pray, God, do your work. God, tend this garden. God, make things happen. God, you do it. It seems holy. It seems spiritual, but it's not, right? It's, it's spiritually immature. What have they been put in the garden to do to work the garden? And sure, they are to pray knowing that God is working in them and through them and they depend on God for their very next breath and God holds everything together. So we pray, but we work. And we pray that we will work in a way that is God-honouring, God-glorifying. And so when it comes to sharing Jesus, this is the same with the Great Commission for for the New Testament church. We're to go out and be mobilised and be active and be bold and brave and really loving each other, that we might provide an active, proper alternative to the world without Christ. How do we share Jesus? With a compelling community. We build and burn bridges and we pray. Let me pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you, God, that we are swept up into your salvation plan and we get the glory of participating in the work of Christ to bring people to salvation. Please, God, give us as a church, as individuals, opportunities to speak boldly as we ought. Help us, God, to do your name justice. In your son's name we pray. Amen.